2: Welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 66, The Enlightened Patrolman, an interview with Nicole von Germersen. I have a special interview episode for you today with Nicole von Gurmerton about her new book, The Enlightened Patrolman, Early Law Enforcement in Mexico City. Nicole is a history professor and the Associate Dean of the College of Liberal Arts at Oregon State University. She's the author of close to 100 books, essays, reviews, and articles, as well as being the recipient of research funding from the Ford Foundation, the Fulbright Program, and the American Philosophical Society, amongst others. Her research and writings have focused on the social history of the Spanish Empire, including sex work in Colombia and the experience of the Afro-Mexican population. The Enlightened Patrolman focuses on a proto-police force in colonial Mexico City and uses primary sources to examine both the day-to-day lives of these men and the larger socio-political ideas behind their work. In the process, it brings the streets of the city to life, providing a fascinating glimpse of what it might have been like to venture out onto the city streets in the Northern Hemisphere's largest city 200 years ago. If you find yourself wanting to know more after listening to the interview, and there are lots of things we didn't have time to cover, the book has recently come out and it's available to order now online. So your book focuses on a specific organization tasked with lighting the streets and maintaining order in Mexico City. Just to get some context, during what time period did they operate? What were their tasks and what were Mexico City and New Spain like more generally at the time?
1: Yeah, thank you for the question. So they were officially founded in 1790. And that was shortly after a um, really horrendous murder case had um, been so-called solved in late 1789. And it was also the beginning of the term of the really well-known viceroy of New Spain, uh, known as the Count of Revilla Gijedo. So he showed up in uh, late October of 1789, right when this 11 person murder took place in, right in the center of Mexico City so immediately the idea was the streets are unsafe and the focus relating to the uh, recently occurring murder was that um there's murders there's violence houses are being invaded valuable objects and and money are being stolen this is an unsafe city so this is how he react why he reacted so quickly to creating a new force of patrolmen. And so they operated through independence, through insurgency in the early 1800s and uh, well into the 19th century. But later developments of of more modern police in the Santa Ana era in the 1830s kind of overtook them. So I I just focus on the uh, viceregal period from 1790 to the early 1820s, uh, when they were kind of the only semi-professional patrols In Mexico City. And so, yeah, this was an era of, um, in the 1790s, uh, really extremes of people's experiences. Uh, So while it was one of the wealthiest eras of new Spanish history, due to um, massive mining booms out of um, Western Mexico, Guanajuato especially, and, you know, more tax collecting, monopolies, all kinds of things that we call the bourbon reforms. It's also a time of a very large number of natural disasters, dozens of earthquakes, droughts, floods, epidemics, whatnot. So it's kind of an extreme where there was a, um extremely wealthy, sophisticated European uh, style <clears throat> elite. And then at the other extreme, there was a great deal of poverty, hunger, you know, inflation, that others suffered, so it was really extreme. So while the city was very luxurious, you know, it had um, theaters, high fashion, uh, music, dance, everything that any uh, capital city in Europe would have, and it was of course Mexico City was of course by far the largest city in North America. So yeah, it was a it was a huge city with all those kind of European luxuries, but also a great deal of poverty could be observed on the streets. You know, there was always. A lot of historians have, have kind of gravitated toward this idea that, you know, there was nudity on the streets, there were people in rags, there were, uh, you know, animals on the streets, filth, you know, sewerage, uh, rotten food, all this kind of thing. Uh, we do We do need to be careful that those are obviously... Statements made by by the Viceroy and by people in that, that elite class. So, you know, highly critical of this place where they have arrived and they're seeking to improve. So I don't know if I uh, necessarily believe all of those kind of negative, um, that negative talk, because that's, uh, you know, extremely biased. It really connects to the whole story of the Night watchman, th- those uh, ideologies of trying to improve this, you know, savage city. And it's interesting that general... Um, tone of life of you know extremely wealthy and as well as signs of extreme poverty this is actually something that's typical when a new law enforcement force is started across you know kind of atlantic history that you know it's perceived at the time as oh this is a super dangerous era but actually when we look back as historians if we look really carefully typically those those law enforcement new institutions are created at rather prosperous eras, you know, because if it were really, really terrible, then probably you wouldn't be thinking of, you know, robberies and whatnot. There would be much more serious issues to worry about uh, invasions, you know, this kind of thing. But um, yeah. And in regards to their basic tasks. So the first essential task that um, had been a project in development for, for a couple of decades since um, about the mid 18th century was the street lighting. And I talk more about that uh, in depth later, but that was the first task for this group of night watchmen who are known as uh, guardafaroleros lantern guards uh, is, is a specific name for them in Spanish. So that's, that's what they were really referred to as people who, you know, uh, maintained the street lights. And so this was the first publicly funded street lights in New Spain so there had been attempts to to create other uh, systems for street lighting, but this was the one that kind of stayed relatively effective. Um, and then their other task um, was, of course, keeping an eye out for you know uh, potential robberies, thefts, violence. Um, you know that's just that concept of if there's a presence of law enforcement, then maybe there'll be a um, decrease in crimes. You know that that's sort of a, a thought to the present day. Um, they also you know, because the the streets were quite dark, they also escorted people involved in what would be their kind of emergency services at the time. So that's very different from now. So it would be midwives, priests, and then the only one that we could probably relate to would be doctors and surgeons. So the night watchman would be called to escort those individuals to cases of, you know, women in labor, people uh, needing last rights uh, people who were dying. So that was one thing they did. They'd also stay alert for, you know, just kind of open windows, open doors, fires, uh, orphans, you know, children on the street at night. Uh, and their hours of work were basically sunset to sunrise. So this was the idea that, you know, if a child is on the street or if a person who's uh, incapacitated, you know, mentally, physically, on the street, they would take them in. um uh, so that was sort of like their uh kind of paternalistic role, kind of the protect and serve role. they they had other duties, but those are kind of the main, the main ones that were part of the foundation. And of course, the um that we'll speak about more in depth later is, of course, the all of the issues with uh drinking. And public drunkenness were a big focus for them but and so the
2: book's title is a play on words as you said the patrolman literally walked around carrying and maintaining lanterns but the impetus for creating them was also based on enlightenment ideas about how cities and societies should be run what were these ideas and why did certain members of the ruling class feel it was so important to light up the streets at night
1: yeah, th- this is a really interesting concept to me. And it is a lot of fun throughout the book to always have a play on words in terms of light. I mean, there's so many metaphors and puns you can use with light. I just had a I was reading a novel recently that had a quote that I thought really summed it up. It's a it's a it's a novel by the recently uh deceased uh Peter Straub, the horror novelist. And he just has this quote. He said, um, this so this sums up, I think it answered your question. He said, uh, artificial light is a poem to reasonable lists reasonableness. The light bulb casts out demons. It speaks in rhymed couplets. So this is an idea that light, artificial light is civilization. And so not only in um, the Spanish speaking world, but across Europe for about you know a century or so, there was a push to light streets at night and this is an idea that that other historians have spoken of, um, who, who I cite in my book, the idea of conquering the night. So that w- what I learned in doing this work is that there's a view from elite ruling classes in this era, in the broader Atlantic world, that plebeians really control the night, that the night is unconquered. They basically live their lives, have their culture, have activities that are not controllable because of darkness. So, darkness hides all of these plebeian activities, not just in this colonial setting that I'm working in in Mexico City, where there's also a race and imperialistic uh, emphasis, but just in general. And, and so, for a wealthy person, you could hire a guard, you could have lanterns, you'd have your carriage with lanterns, etc. For middle class people, you know, you maybe just carry a lantern. But for uh, lower classes, working classes, plebeians, you know, it was just the darkness that was not patrolled by the authorities. So it was kind of your space to do what you want. So this is where we think of it as like a conquest of the night. And more specifically, because, you know, we could trace that all the way back to um, kind of counter-Reformation almost um, era. But more specifically for you know, kind of the enlightened absolutists of the late uh, 18th century, including the Spanish who were very much part of the Enlightenment, although that's a little bit uh, less studied than than more Northern Europeans. But of course, they had a very complex, uh, sophisticated, you know, Enlightenment thinking, just like every other European uh, nation in the 18th century. Um, they also thought about their economy, and they had an understanding that their understanding, both in Spain and the New World, was that the lower classes were not uh, working effectively. You know, they were lazy, they were disorganized, all those classics, uh, classist stereotypes. So, you know, going out at night, controlling the streets, vagrancy, alcohol consumption, all that was basically making their population inefficient, you know, as workers. So they couldn't produce for the country, they couldn't produce uh taxes, you know, tax income, they couldn't produce product, the products that could be sold, um, you know, in international trade, all those aspects of just basic productivity. The idea was we need to make our population more educated, you know, literally like less savage. And then they'll become more productive workers. So our economy can continue apace. You know, it was this concept that that they're lazy and that they're um, ignorant and they're wasting time, you know, other other vice, so-called vices, gambling, whatnot. So that's an aspect of it for the Spanish. Another aspect is a sense that other cities were more beautiful, that were more sophisticated and light was definite, a street lighting and urban lighting was definitely seen as a sign of urban beautification. And it's a point of pride for Spanish leaders, for Spanish viceroys to say, you know our our city is as beautiful as populous as well lighted as any european city and and the street lighting were definitely connected to that again because anything that had to do with plebeian physicality or or kind of um cultural practices you know at night being on the street drinking etc is seen as just ugliness you know it's it's bodies that the the embodiment of the poor is, is ugly, is ignorant. Whereas if you think of the, you know, sophisticated enlightenment culture is what they obviously perceived from the elite group as beautiful. So having orderly cities is a sign of beauty, a sign of pride. Um, you know, there, there's quotes along the lines of, um, you know, the uh, new viceroy arrives in this incredibly populous, and in fact, wealthy city, And it should also be a beautiful place. Like that's part of his reputation as the viceroy to beautify any given viceroy in the 18th century, to beautify the city that he's arrived in by European standards of the time. You know, and so, of course, that also involves other than, you know, reforms relating to labor, like I spoke of before, though, those worries, uh, it also relates to um, massive street paving projects, aqueducts, you know, drainage, all that kind of thing, uh, parks, even regulations about traffic and signage and all that kind of stuff, uh, address uh, numbers on houses, that that sort of idea that what was interesting for me in doing the research was, you know, all this stuff that we take for granted in a city, a simple thing like address numbers didn't exist before the, the sort of mid-18th century. So there were no address numbers. Trash collection, obviously, that's a, a super vital aspect of, of making a city uh, livable. Another thing that the Night Watchmen did that that related to this concept of, you know, uh, enlightenment is they were the, um, which I didn't mention before in my last answer, that they were kind of the animal control. So there was a big uh, dog population on the streets of Mexico City. And what simply what they viewed that as other than the perhaps dangers and, and whatnot of, you know rabies biting, et cetera. They just viewed it as it made the city seem like a countryside. If you hear barking dogs and, and cows and roosters crowing and all that in a city, it it's it's a, has a rural feeling. And of course, you know, there's a great distinction between city life and uh, rural life. And that that's a you know consistent throughout Spanish history that the city is a place where civilization is. So it shouldn't have this feeling like you're on a ranch, you know um, so, so the night that was part of the night watchman's task to get the dogs off the street. Uh, that that was a very uh, brutal, violent aspect of their duties. Probably the most gruesome for a lot of readers, I, I, I think. But the um, yeah, so that's all connected to the idea of the city should, should be civilized. There's an idea that we need to imitate Europe. That's very much repeated in the in the decades where they're trying to create this system of public lighting, like Europe. European cities do this. And European cities have a better judicial system. So that's what we need to do as well. The patrolmen and the lights will help us um, prevent crime in our city. You know, it's they, they view it as simply as that, that if there's people on the streets, and the streets aren't dark, we will have safer streets, we will be more have a more enlightened approach to justice so there's there's really almost almost everything is is tied to that concept light and civilization in in the ideology that overarches the foundation of of this law enforcement institution so that that's like the ideological intellectual perspective that in my mind is you know it's a little bit ironic to say enlightened patrolmen because obviously the men who worked on the street themselves were not enlightenment thinkers, <laughs> right? They were just carrying the light, you know, so physically carrying it. So that that's kind of a um it's almost like a question mark you could say like are they enlightened? Are they the enlightened patrolman? You know, question mark in the title. But um yeah so so I it is fun to play on words like that and and I do feel like it really resonates you know with that concept. And of course in Spanish it's even better because we have the term for the enlightenment siglo de luces, you know, the century of, of lights. So it's just a very nice uh, symbolic package there <laughs> all around.
2: And so to, to produce the book, you basically examined the paper trail that these patrolmen created. And to a certain extent, their superiors talking about how what they should be doing, what they were doing right and wrong, things like that. Um, but could you go further into what kind of documents you had to go on and how easy it was to find them?
1: Yeah, that that's always a fun question for an archival-based uh, social historian like myself. Uh, historians of my field know about this this source called the Libros de Reyes, and there was a historian uh, Michael Scardaville who studied this for his uh, dissertation way back in the mid to late nineteen seventies, and um, so that that kind of made a lot of us aware over the years that this is a source. He he used it to talk about poverty in uh, kind of uh, ideas about the poor in um, this era of Mexico City. And there's one legal historian called uh, Sanchez Garcia, and he's used it for studying the judiciary. But to my knowledge, no one else has systematically and comprehensively used these records. And so they're called Libros de Reos. They're basically, that means... Books of arrested individuals, and about four or so survive right now that I could have access to. Yeah, so they're they're basically just uh, police dockets, police logbooks. They're they're very much related to, to maybe something that that exists today, you know, or, or especially before we had computerization, where you know there might have just been a, a written log of activities um, each night taken on by by law enforcement patrols. Myself and those two other um, scholars that I mentioned, we've kind of done a statistical analysis and of course I, I worked with what they did, but I also kind of did my own. And it ends up having um, several thousand names and a few thousand kind of incidents. Now, so that is so I, I counted about 3,600 incidents of encounters of, you know an individual or several individuals interacting with the night patrols. But that is not my only source. Um, I also had the, what they call the uh, nightly report of the Guarda Mayor. So that's like, to talk in a very modern and anachronistic way, the Guardamayor is like the police chief. And so he took a report every night of the approximately 99 patrolmen that were in the street. And he just does uh, a simple log where he's not saying all of their arrests, which is what the Libro de Reos does. It talks about all the arrests, all the people brought in. This is just kind of a summary of what the men are doing each night. So a lot of them just say basically nothing. They, they patrolled their beat, you know. But other other details exist. And this is actually where I found the details regarding the animal control. It was in the Mayor reports. And then, um, so that that about, you know, maybe a couple dozen of those exist especially in the early 1820s, unfortunately, not so much in the earlier period. So that is a report that I've never heard of anyone else using. And and it's pretty helpful in terms of kind of plotting their activities across the night and understanding which sub-regions of the city they patrolled, which is a key part of my book, you know, creating that geographic space. And then, of course, I use like, you know, as you said, the kind of elite documents so that those other sources are, to me, pure social history. You know, they're just piecing together like three words, you know, (laughs) repeated across thousands of records. What are these three words, you know, these very scant descriptions? How can we create a story out of that? You know, there's really not a lot there, but when you add up a few thousand of them, you start to see patterns. And that's what I was trying to do, along with the other historians who were seeking other pieces of information to derive from or conclusions to derive. But yeah, the, the elite sources, you know, would be things like trying to implement uh, street lighting, you know, just general thoughts, general kind of, in my mind, sort of elite musings. And that that's not really the type of source that I gravitate towards in my uh, three decades of being a historian. I, I really like the smaller sources that don't have just an obvious bias, you know, in a narrative structure, but that are more just bits and pieces. And then also another source that I don't believe has been used too much is when the night watchmen were actually arrested themselves and had uh, more prolonged cases, judicial cases where they were either witnesses or they were the defendant. So when they got in trouble, when they committed crimes, they would have a case, a judicial case about them, just like any other defendant, uh, any other uh, accused individual. So I tried to go into those to learn a little bit more about who they were, their personalities, because as anyone knows who studies uh, Latin America, the Spanish-speaking world, always there's a decent amount of biographic detail in every you know criminal case file. So the only way I could know biographic detail is not through the libros de Reos, because there's not enough information provided, but through the um through the longer cases where where the night watchmen were in trouble. You know, that's how I got biographic detail because it always says, you know, race, marital status, where the person was born, their age, you know, so that's how I could accumulate some biographic detail was in these larger cases. So, um, yeah, so as always, I, you know, previous historians help, help point us to sources, but we need to, uh, you know, do something different and incorporate more sources so we're not just, you know, kind of u- using what they did. And, of course, I'm, I'm really grateful that other historians have paved the way, um, those two that I mentioned, because nobody's really written, especially a book-length story uh, of these men. I, I really had to pull in a lot of other things as well, what I've described, and you can get a lot from that. And I know my my dissertation advisor from Berkeley, Professor Bill Taylor, who, who spoke on a previous episode, it was really great to have his kind of support in this book. And, and he commented, you know, it really takes a lot of imagination and patience to pull these sources together because it's not like you can go to a file and it's just like, okay, here's all the stuff on the Night Watchman. You know, it's not, that's not in existence. <laughs> so you have to kind of pull a lot of different stuff together, like, like most social history topics.
2: Yeah, that was something I was I was going to comment on. You really bring the streets and the characters to life throughout the book. You know, individual kind of life stories occasionally of patrolmen, um, things like that, which I thought was, it made the book really, really easy to read and really enjoyable. Um, I was going to ask, are these sources digitalized or did you have to go somewhere to find them?
1: Yeah, I was uh, everything for this particular uh book. Every single thing was in the National Archive in Mexico City. Uh so in my other books I've I've you know looked around at different archives even in Seville and Madrid and and what you know actually dozens of of kind of smaller towns in in Mexico. But in this case I was doing a 100% Mexico City project. <laughs> so everything was in Mexico City. Some scattered stuff may be digitalized on um, the the archive webpage that that people can access. But last time I looked, which hasn't been that recently because obviously I finished writing the book and doing the research a couple years ago, um, the, the libros de reos themselves are not digitized because they're they're pretty long, you know, and they're each page would not be that exciting you know, to the casual viewer, it's bringing it all together. So um, I was really lucky. I had a number of undergraduates here at Oregon State University who went down with me. And I've been um, privileged to be allowed to photograph stuff in archives since the 1990s. And that's just uh, thanks to um, the people who work in those archives who were kind enough to let foreign uh, researchers, you know, take photographs. Ever since we had the ability to do, you know, digital photos, it's really been a lot easier. But I, so I've been taking these um, photos for, for decades, and then I had the help of my students because, you know, these are hundreds of pages. So I was able to get some really great undergraduates from my institution to come down with me, and they're doing their own research, you know, um, studying Spanish, all that, going on to grad school themselves. And so as a step, you know, it was kind of, uh help me help me take these photos so that's what they did and I, i'm really grateful to them for doing that so then i was again really lucky during the time of all the shutdowns i had all these photos like hundreds if not thousands of photos that i could go through on my laptop in order to write this book and, and another book i have coming out next year so i don't think you could do the work online but you can do it at home if you prep you know you you prep with getting all those photos you know, like I said, hundreds, if not thousands of them <laughs> and then they're available, you know, I can go back to them or, 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 share them with other researchers or what have you. Right.
2: A few days ago, I arrived back in Bogota, Colombia. I'm delighted to be back in Latin America, surrounded by all the sights and sounds I love. It's been a while since I was here though. And my Spanish has become a little rusty. Have you ever learned a language for a trip abroad, to connect with family and friends, or simply just for the fun of it, you might know what I mean. To help get me back up to scratch, I've been using Rosetta Stone. It's been perfect for this, allowing me to pick up at the level that I'm at, rather than starting from the beginning. And as it's available on both desktop and as an app on my phone, and lessons can be downloaded for use when not connected to the internet, I've been able to make use of time spent on planes and buses. I've already noticed a difference as I engage in conversations with locals and navigate everyday interactions in shops, restaurants and museums. Its true accent speech recognition feature has helped me to perfect my pronunciation and encouraged me to think in Spanish as well as just attempting to speak it. Over 30 years, Rosetta Stone has perfected its language learning method to create a program which is immersive, intuitive, and designed to promote long-term retention. It's also great value, with its current half price membership giving you access to 25 languages for life. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Latin American History Podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time.
2: And if you love the fillet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only.
1: Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
2: Ba 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 ba. For us today, the idea of the police not existing um seems quite strange. It can be quite hard for us to get our heads around how law and justice might have worked. In the book, you point out that the patrolmen were not police quite in the way that we understand them, but perhaps you would say they were a step on the, along the path towards our police. So how were crimes prevented and how were people who had committed them apprehended and tried in New Spain before these patrolmen were set up or during the day when they weren't patrolling? And you also mentioned that they... They had interactions with other groups who had a law enforcement role, such as the military. So, how did they interact with groups such as those?
1: Yeah, the the history of, to me, the history of law enforcement is so fascinating, and it, it's so important to to so many countries. So, like to talk specifically about Mexico City, and then maybe broaden it out a bit. And even we have to go back to Spain. You know, of course, Spain has their own ancient kind of law enforcement. Um, The Santa Hermandad is really famous, uh, which is a kind of highway patrol. If you look up this information, I mean, all of these law enforcement bodies in some form continue through to the present. The key distinction between a traditional patrol, which Mexico City had before these men, before the Guadalajara, is the volunteer aspect of it. Law enforcement across, and again, really what I'm working on is the Atlantic world. I don't have expertise in, say, Asia or Africa or the Middle East or, 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 or India or whatnot. I, I can only speak of kind of European-related locations, uh, unfortunately. But law enforcement is volunteer. So it's basically a kind of neighborhood watch with all the shortcomings that you can imagine. And and for the Spanish speaking world, including Mexico City, that, that was a, an honorable task, you know, to be the alcalde is a person who's known as an honorable man that you can knock on his door and he'll help you in the night. Or he might have some patrols, of which I'm not clear what kind of like timing they would have, you know, do they patrol all night long? Does he go out once with a group of his pals. I mean, that's a little unclear to me, but they did patrol. There were also military patrols, especially in this late 18th century time period going into insurgency where there's more militarization in Mexico City and, and Spanish America for various, you know, glo- more global reasons, right? But that's all volunteers. So it's extremely different. And those coexisted, just like in, in most cities in the Atlantic world, the volunteers coexisted with the movements towards professional law enforcement. So they're obviously conflicting, because like I said, and your question pointed to military, military has a certain honor, affiliated with it certain privileges um, for the Spanish speaking world, the alcaldes are men of honor, they're entrusted with this. I, I guess it's like, I mean, it could be relatable to to the British system where you have these kind of, uh, you know, justice of, of the peace, that's kind of person. So, so they're more elite people. And the military have their sense of privilege and certain specific privileges so to them the night watchmen are just plebeian brutes you know and 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 they even make a mockery of them like you have no authority during the daytime it's, you know we uh, as alcaldes or uh, as um military men we're still that during the day but during the day you're you're nothing because you're night watchmen you're guardafoleros you're lantern guards so they so there were these coexisting groups now, you say, how did you police anything before? And there really weren't patrols. like To have patrolmen in the streets in the daytime is not typical of history. (laughs) And this is why we always have to remember that any resistance to law enforcement patrols of any kind is the norm. That is the norm. And that's one of the points of my book, Because, of course, I was writing in this era of anti-police activism in 2020, and I I kind of had the incentive, like, to resist law enforcement is the norm, and all historiography will indicate that. So right from the beginning, people are against law enforcement. So to continue your question, how did anything get police? Like, how did people report crimes? They could report them directly to the Alcalde or to a court so they have the system that that historians who who study this era and this uh, these geographic spaces uh the querella the the complaint so you bring a complaint forward and that applies to all the numerous courts with, within the spanish system including the holy office of the spanish inquisition these are always generated by complaints because they didn't have the policing ability um that's a modern concept and and there's a couple other aspects of modern police that i I can't help but to mention, because I'm just really interested in it, <laughs> that, um, you know, things like a uniform. So the night watchmen in Mexico City did not wear a uniform. They they carried a, a chuso, what we might translate as a pike, just a stick with a sharp end, uh, you know, a metal thing at the end that, that could be used as a weapon. They carried that. They carried their lantern. Basically, that was their uniform. There's no other uniform. And the reason is because uniforms are military. So... The French uh, law enforcement had uniforms. And and in this era, French law enforcement was viewed as extremely oppressive spies. You know, that's how other Europeans viewed French law enforcement, you know, Paris uh, police, whatever. They were early. They started really early. So it was seen as, as a very controlling, authoritative, spy-like entity that other countries didn't want to emulate. And so, of course, we don't have um, uniforms in uh, say London police until 1830, and the choice of uniforms is a big deal because it just gives people. If you had London police in uh, red coats like the military, I mean, it's just so obvious as a target of resistance. <laughs> you know, the the idea was make it a little more subtle with a blue coat and with the night watchman. They, other than their lantern and their staff, they look like regular plebeians. They're just in a cloak and a hat, boots. You know, um, plain colored. Uh, they don't have a uniform provided. Another aspect of what is modern policing is to have it be, you know, paid a salary. So these men were paid a salary, although typical of, of the Spanish speaking world, if if they incurred damages, they paid them. So they could end up owing more than they earned, which is not great, of course, right? But they weren't paid like the Bow Street Runners, another uh British law enforcement uh institution. They weren't paid by the job like a bounty hunter. So that, that's not modern law enforcement to be kind of paid by the job, uh, you know, so then you're just hired by who has the most money. They The Mexico City Night Watchmen did not have that. Another, th- So they weren't volunteer. They weren't paid by the job. They were paid a salary. Those are all indications of modern law enforcement, modern policing. As I said in my previous answer, they had a kind of a chief, and that chief was connected to city and state governments. So the chief was directly supervised by the viceroy. He had a lot of interactions. This is the Guarda the head guard. He had a lot of interactions with the municipal government, the city government, all the different institutions, complex institutions of city government in Mexico City. This is modern, right? Not modern is having a nobleman have an entourage with weapons, which is the norm, you know, throughout European history, right? Those are the people who police the streets. That's why there's so much violence uh, throughout history on city streets, uh, in in say early modern or medieval Europe, yes. Yeah, so those are the, some of the aspects of of what is modern policing. It's it's really about how they're organized as a modern state bureaucracy. So that's why I try to kind of make the assertion that this is one of the more modern police forces or you know proto police forces in the Americas. Because while the cities like Philadelphia, Baltimore, Boston, New York existed, they were only uh, a few thousand. The population was tiny and they didn't have this kind of modern structure until um kind of mid-19th century almost. But they did have night watchmen, but they were more that typical kind of parish guard that you also hear about for uh Great Britain, you know. So these so these guys that I'm studying are kind of an a, amalgamation of of old and new. I think I think that covers your the different parts yeah, of the question.
2: Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> it's it's fascinating. Um I think so too. I, you don't realize you just sort of take the police as a given even if you're even if you have problems with the police it's just very interesting to think about how society was ordered in previous times in a completely different way
1: i think about that a lot i mean if you study history you know if there's no professional law enforcement with all their shortcomings if you especially if you study latin american history spanish portuguese history who steps in the catholic church the mm-hmm. other option is kind of this neighborhood watch i mean these are all not great options
2: <laughs> yeah and when you're talking about feudal kind of feudal lords so that's not that doesn't sound very appealing either
1: it's yeah kind of kind of like vikings you know eye for an eye sort of mm-hmm. vengeance based justice also not ideal
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned, you talked about how um, they were quite low paid, the patrolmen, and how they could they could actually end up losing money if there was damage to the equipment. You also talk about in the book how they would sometimes face physical violence and open hostility from the population of the city. So on the one hand, it seems like a pretty, pretty horrible job, um, and you sort of wonder who would want to do it. Um, But on the other hand, you do you do mention you mentioned earlier about how sometimes they would be arrested themselves. And some of them at least seem to think that there were certain perks that came with the job, which you could describe a lot of the time as abuse of power and position. So what do we know about the people who who signed up to do it and why they chose chose to do it?
1: Yeah that that um that's a great question and that that's the one that's a little difficult because I as I said earlier you know that there's not a lot of details about them in the more numerous records they're always referred to by number so they have a a number and that's also an aspect of modernity that they they have a badge number in a sense you know that that strikes me when i figured that out that struck me as really modern but the badge number actually relates to their patrol area Um, So not not uh, their identity. So it's even more anonymous as they're sort of non entities. They're just numbers. So that that shows sort of how they were viewed. You know, these are just plebeian men. This is a physical job. It's slightly more dependable than being a day laborer. So my supposition, my assumption is that and I try to kind of focus on this one character, Bernal, who is a a cabo, a uh, corporal of the guard. You know, I I kind of think about him in a, a sort of semi-fictional way that, you know, he came to Mexico City in the 1780s from rural areas that are drought, epidemics, you know, people. It's a horrible situation in any given river, uh, rural area at this time with natural disasters and, and, and um, economic struggles. So come to Mexico City, what can you do? Well, if you're completely working class, plebeian, rural, poor, you don't have really contacts to go into the church. You certainly don't have the education or status to do a professional job like a notary or a lawyer. Don't have the wherewithal to be an international merchant that, you know, that requires a Spaniard with global connections. Um, And so really day laborer or servant. And, you know, it's funny, uh, one of the early accounts of the Bow Street Runners that's meant to be written by a bow street runner in the 1830s says the same thing. I, I don't have the personality to be a servant. I don't want to wear livery, you know? It's, so it's like that That people don't want to do that and they don't want to be a day laborer. I mean, that's digging ditches. You know, there's nothing attractive about that. And that's the vast majority of the population, you know, and, and for women, domestic labor or market selling. So it's not a bad job in that regard, but um, a great historian who who passed away maybe a decade or so ago, Paul Vanderwood wrote a great book about Mexican law enforcement in the 19th century. And, and he makes the point that I that I cite in my book that, um, you know, the, the police reflect the culture where they are. And, and this is something that's been heavily studied in other areas, you know, that that police become a, a symbol of masculinity in a certain kind of exaggerated, almost at times heroic fashion. So the concept in Mexico City where if you're a plebeian man who's spending time on the streets at night, to not drink pulque, the indigenous, you know, cactus-based fermented drink, it is out of character. <laughs> you know, this is what people do. So to assume, and this is kind of coming from Paul Vanderwood's um, book of a while back, that's that's their classic on Mexican nineteenth-century law enforcement. Um, to to assume that that these men wouldn't, you know, go into a pulqueria and maybe get a little drunk or tipsy, that would could be completely out of their cultural realm. So they're going to do that, and the idea of abuses on the street—you know—I have a couple of case studies that specifically talk about sexual abuse, assault of of one particular woman, Brujida um, Gomez. The, you know, this is something that we're aware of in terms of women uh, working on the streets, especially sex workers, to the to the present day, right? That that is a a potential abuse situation because of everything that I describe in that anecdote. Uh, it, it really brings it to life. Um, You know, these men, their power is only limited to that street encounter. So they don't have, I would argue, similar to law enforcement to this day, they don't have extended power. There's so much competition with courts and judges and other law enforcement officials above their rank, etc. The only power and authority they have is in those encounters on the street. So then as now, it should not astonish us that sometimes there's an abuse of power in those moments because these are heavily conflicted moments. You know, these are people who are seeking a physical job. If others are are drinking and partying on the streets, it would be unusual if they didn't as well. They there's no record of them having some kind of a standard of behavior that they have to take a vow to carry out, right? Like in more modern law enforcement, even including the Bobbies from 1830. Although there are comments that they should, you know, speak more politely and whatnot, there's no standard, you know, and and there's no like application vetting process that I'm aware of. So it's just like, okay, we got a guy who's capable of basically staying up all night, maybe. (laughs) And he's willing to, you know, do this, most likely get beat up himself. Everybody is going to hate him. You know who's going to do that job? <laughs> so, so these are not people who have better options. If they did, they would probably do that. And and in fact, um, virtually all of them were illiterate. There's no indication that any of them could read or write. If you could read or write, that meant a promotion right there to to cabo like Bernal, the cabo the corporal I mentioned, because he could sign his name. So right there, you can see the, these are not privileged elite people. There are some indications, which to me is fascinating, that some of them were not of Spanish ancestry. There were night watchmen who were labeled as Indio, as indigenous. There were a handful, which is typical of the era, labeled with race labels from this period that indicate African ancestry. That This is really surprising to me because these men were, in some petty way, authority figures. They did arrest individuals who called themselves Spaniards, who were individuals who, who could claim honor. So it's very complex. And I think that that extends to the present day, you know, there's opportunities for abuse and there's certainly people who perhaps go into the work seeking, you know, a voyeuristic experience, an opportunity to, to engage in violence, right. An opportunity to kind of be a bully or, or to, uh, you know, take advantage of of women on the street, um, sexual assault, whatnot. That there's certainly people who might be drawn to that, or, or it comes out in them more when they have this sense of authority. But you know, in general, I think they were just plebeian men acting like other plebeian men of their culture. It, they're really not any different from other any other plebeian man in that time and place. You know, in terms of always being ready to fight. You know, having certain ideas about gender and sexuality. You know, these are pretty normal and. and enjoying pulque, you know, these are pretty normal characteristics for for the time period (laughs) for for a working class man.
2: So one of the most common issues the patrolmen dealt with was drunkenness. And one of the things I really liked is you went as far as to map out where the pulqueria bars were in, in a section of Mexico City and to log where people had passed out on their way home and been discovered by patrolmen. It also seems... I also I picked up from kind of from the book that there was this, this idea that the drunkenness problem in quotation marks was related to the indigenousness of the population. I imagine in many European cities at the time, public drunkenness would have been a big problem. It still is today, I'd say, in a lot, especially in Northern Europe. Um, so how much of a problem was it? And why did the authority seem to link it to the indigenous population?
1: Yeah, th- this is this connects, and and I'll answer kind of briefly. Um, this, could, although it's a huge and and great topic, that again, my advisor, um, Professor Bill Taylor, also studied in the '70s. So I am I'm very inspired by him. But the, this is a um, a great topic, a huge topic, and it generally, in I think my opinion and the opinion of most historians, anyone I can imagine it relates to this idea of imperialism and a sense of, you know, you have this savage, barbaric uh, group that you need to impose civilization on. So I I truly think it's as simple as that. What I want to do is be sure that I'm not making those same presumptions. And so I think you make a good point that, you know, we can, all of us can read about or know about, um, you know, Jin in 18th century London, like this is very well known. So it's it's no different. We're just in an imperial situation where we're caste and class, what we would call race are very important. So Spaniards also drank. Spaniards were also arrested for severe intoxication. But there was a greater percentage of indigenous people arrested, perhaps because they were the people who would be drinking in more public places, in more plebeian settings. Uh, you know, buquerias are, are indigenous That's an indigenous drink. It's an indigenous social setting in Mexico City that only continues to grow for the next 100 years. It doesn't even reach its peak for another 100 years. So it's totally not suppressed by the Night Watchmen or any other governmental action. It completely flourishes for at least another century until beer comes around, right? And to briefly answer your your last question, I mean, I think that, like I said at the beginning, these were streets that were run by the poor and working classes so perceptions of danger are similar to to today it's about that perception of difference i i don't think it was especially more or less dangerous than any other city it's just like oh my goodness these people are different they're uncivilized they're not relatable you know and i really want to emphasize that um there's so much subtlety in studying the drinking patterns that, and I appreciate you mentioning that, you know, we can really see the subtleties of drunkenness that were perceived, the locations, the patterns of drinking, all of that can be revealed in these records if you study them correctly. So that, that was a goal of mine to really recreate the nightlife. What would it be to party in Mexico city in the 1790s? So that's definitely something that I'm, I'm trying to do for readers and there, but I really encourage people to read if they're you know, if they want to, like you said, if they want to come, kind of come to Mexico City, take a little bit of a time machine, feel what it would be like to to party on those streets in the 1790s. I really welcome listeners to to look at the book and hopefully you'll get to kind of feel that feeling.
2: Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks so Cheer. much. Rob. Cheers. Bye
2: bye. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com the history of Latin America. And that's spelled M A X S E R J E A N T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at HistoryLatinAM, and if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash Photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T Photo. Thanks for listening.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Crispy Sandwich.